Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Herman. We have a really special guest on. I'm very excited for this one. I'm going to keep it short this time. She's an anthropologist, but she's done fantastic research on very interesting subjects. Identity, gender, ayahuasca, leadership on development, and a bunch of very interesting things. Dr. Violetta Schubert, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you, and thank you for having me both. I was thank really excited. Thank you for excited. coming. I was going through your bio, as, as I said, yeah. and as we were talking, and you've done research on very specific and very interesting subjects that I don't think are talked about enough nowadays, especially in Australia. And given that one of my favorite subjects were, was ayahuasca, let's start with that because we just we were just having a conversation on that. You've done research on all these subjects. What led you to start researching okay. in these? Let's let's start from that. Okay. So can I start with my journey? Please. Yeah. We yeah. would love to. Absolutely. Yeah. Please. So I was a um, typical wog kid, yeah. What's yeah. wog? <laughs> <coughs> Harman's been in the country so, for six years. He's a, oh, yes, no, just so yeah. you know. Just, there's some my context. My family migrated in the 70s. Yes. Yeah? Um, I'm from what is now referred to as the Republic of North Macedonia. Mm. So when you arrive, the first thing you get is go back home, you wog, go back home, you wog. So yeah, yeah. the thing of the wog. I've heard that once or twice in my yeah. life. Yeah, a few times. Um, didn't know English. It was really confronting because I'd just started oh, grade two back in my country in the village where I'm from and I was writing poetry. Wow. Yeah, I was a seven, eight-year-old who writing thought poetry? that I was going to write. Yeah, yeah. I, I, while other kids were practising lines for their alphabet, I was writing full sentences. And that's because most of the time, I think being an outsider, even in the village, my father was an orphan. He'd married uh, my mother, um, lived with her parents. He was in an unfamiliar village. He didn't have a place um, of his own. Mm, yeah. His bride was not coming into his household, mm. so they're called house husbands. And there's a really interesting dynamic of not belonging. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So that was one impression for me. The other impression was I for witnessed um, a domestic violence scene with neighbours. The woman rashed um, into our house and the husband, drunk, was holding a knife, wielding a knife. And my mother said, this was just before I started um, grade one as a seven-year-old, and I just went, oh, and within two weeks all my hair fell out. Wow. So I was bold, literally really? bold. Fell and out. I totally fell out. Fear. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they tried all sorts of things, including the voodoo stuff, the witchcraft, home remedies. Hmm. I went, uh, then I was taken, someone said, you should go and take her to this doctor. He had some shampoo, lotion. It eventually came back. But in that time, you know, you're starting school, you're bold. There's a lot of ignorance. As a girl. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember being at a wedding and, you know, a mother pulling a child back and saying, don't touch her, she might be diseased. Mm. So I, I had that sense of concern with one's place in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds funny to say that I'm that young and thinking about whether I belong or not belong, but it sort of builds up. Mm. Yeah. yeah. 
And coming to Australia was really weird. You know, first I remember vividly put in grade two, Hyde Street, Footscray Primary School. The teacher was quite elderly, pre-retirement um, maybe. She had this bright red lipstick that went over her thin line and she bowed right into my face and spoke slowly because she thought, if I don't know English, if she talks slowly, I'll get it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they put you in, you know, these special English classes. And I deliberately thought, no, I'm not staying here. And so within three months I learned English enough. Can I can I ask how old were you back then? Eight and a half. Eight and a half yeah. years, wow. So the reason I'm sort of going that far back, I was the first girl in my extended family to not only finish high school but to get to uni. In When I was doing um, high school the last year, the equivalent grade uh, year 12 equivalent coordinator saying to me, the best that you could do, my girl, is work as a teller. And I said, the best that I'm going to do is be the first WOG female prime minister of Australia. Fuck yes. So <laughs> I knew I wanted to go to university. Yeah. We didn't have money. <clears throat> I worked part-time at um, Footscray Market and what I earned there was for me to pay to live near Latrobe because I was the first kid who's not married to live outside of home and the only reason you can do that is if you're studying far away. Mm. I knew I wanted something bigger. bigger. Mm. So I get to uni but I don't know what I want to do. I started off with all the things that I was good at, literature and all that, you know, um, John Dunn poetry, politics, economics. God, that was boring. <laughs> Did legal study. That wasn't that good. I in, I had close to eight majors wow. <laughs> equivalent. In my seventh year, one of my profs in sociology and anthropology said to me, Violetta, you must choose. And so I ended up choosing. And he said, you're naturally an anthropologist because I'm interested in everything human. Yeah. About people. Wow. So um, I also did legal aid counselling for a bit. There was a component of psych psychology counselling part of it. Mm. Did um, that was a you know phenomenal experience. And with anthropology, what I found was the space where the study of humanity made sense. Yeah. Mm. That concern with us as social beings and our place in the world. Yeah. That's right. how it began. Yeah, right. So anthropology was my thing. Um, I started off with looking at language. <clears throat> First project, and I'm still a linguistic anthropology sort of background interest. My honours was, believe it or not, I analysed the language of neighbours, a few of the Australian newspapers and a few other shows. Um, just to get a sense of how is class represented in the kind of language that's represented on television or in media and the way that they reaffirm status and reaffirm our place in the world through choice of words. Mm. Yeah? yeah? Right. So language is, and I've got a few papers including a recent one on semiotics. 
So Semiotics. the meanings of words, the mm. nuance of words. So I did one with the famous anthropologist Gassan Hash, who's also a colleague at Melbourne, and we he um, edited a volume of different people's work on decay. So mm. I did the semiotics of and rhetorics of decay, and just a few months ago I published a paper on the semiotics of dirt, or sorry, dirt ground groundedness as our way of looking at how we represent through material references such as dirt about truth and reality. So I sort of go into things and spots. Yes. Um, And you were asking about the ayahuasca. With anthropology, to get your PhD, you have to spend at least a year, year and a half, ideally if you've got more time, with the community that you are studying. So your endeavour is not to be sort of formally asking a question like we're doing, Mm. but the bit of both of you allowing me to speak Mm. and things emerge. Yeah, And so spending, I did my field work for a just over a year in a mountain village in Macedonia, my uh, place of birth. I didn't have any connections. I stayed mostly in one village. There are, and every day, you have to have a humble position. You're not going in as an expert. They're not quite sure why you want to know about their culture, why you want to know about them. They're just villagers. Um... But I've, I went in there with this idea in my head that everywhere was about the Greece-Macedonia named conflict of the place. There was ethnic tensions, post-Bosnia war, ethnic cleansing. So everyone was obsessed about these ethnic hatreds in, in my ex-Yugoslavia you know, country. And when I got there, that's not what people were concerned about. What people were concerned about was the very essence of life. The sons were not getting married. So you've got a village where there's, you know, less than nine girls available for marriage and 64 ageing bachelors. And, you know, from the first day I was there um, in the main village I stayed at, (coughs) you're having mums, you know, scurrying because they heard that there was a girl that came to the village and she's going to be working with, you know, associated with the primary school um, in some way. And as soon as one would find out that, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm married, I've got two children at the time, um, well, what's a married woman doing here? You know, Mm. so I got all these concerns on a daily basis and, I wrote in the book, Modernity and the Unmaking of Men, that these mums were thinking that their life was over, finished, because their sons weren't getting married, because there wasn't a marriage. So I did a lot of this sort of stuff that I didn't anticipate. That's because in anthropology what you should be concerned about is the reality of what people are concerned about, yeah, not what you want out of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, so, and that was the journey year and a half later. Come back, I 
few things like marriage breakdown, have another child, you do tutoring and, and other stuff. It's part of your work and gradually mm. the position I'm in. Ayahuasca, get back, long story short. Along the journey, I've supervised a student who's been concerned with Chinese medicine. Mm. I've collected during the Balkan um, in Macedonia, the fieldwork, a lot about witchcraft, dreams, people's home interpretations of illness and well-being. Yeah, Which would be different from Western medicine and how exactly. we describe it. Exactly. And that whole thing of where the journey to well-being comes from and how you deal with it. Um, I had a lot of information. I still haven't written about it because I'm not a biologist. I'm, I'm not. I don't feel I, confidently that I could speak to species and yeah. <laughs> typologies and stuff mm. of plants. But the old people would, you know, show me. Oh, you use this grass for this purpose. Yeah. The healing. You know, if you people who have diarrhea, they should do this yeah. and that. So I had a lot of notes. Yeah about those sorts of things. And I've, in development studies, which is the program that I'm part of, I just feel that so much attention is on, you know, what constitutes social, economic, political development that they don't pay attention to how people mm. do well-being. Right. And so in a trip in 2012 as part of a project that I had with other colleagues um, in Timor-Leste. And the, it was very clear that post-conflict there were so many psychological well-being issues. So, you know, that, so this overall concern with the ayahuasca was after that project I was contacted by one of my key collaborators, Dr Daniel Perkins, um, and he said, you're really interested in culture. Are you really interested in all these things? I've got a project idea. Um, I'm not a member of the university. Um, he wasn't at the time working at the, And it was about wanting to understand alternative psychedelic approaches mm. to well-being and health. Mm. And that's how we connected. Yeah, so I'm not coming in as a medicinal science person with the ayahuasca and the medicinal psychedelics. It was coming in from an anthropological perspective about well-being, how we do mental health, physical health in different cultural contexts and how we interpret that, mm. but also the knowledge that people have that is not Shared Just, enough. Yeah. yeah, not the Western. Yes. I'm not di di ditching our Western knowledge. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. But it has to be complemented. Mm, absolutely. The knowledge, yeah. There's that so had, much knowledge we don't have. That has have. been yeah. passed over hundreds of years. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you can't tell me that there are, you know, the great people are not skilled. Mm. You know, knowledge passed down generation from generation there's, you know, practice involved. Yeah? yeah. It's not. So 
to me, that was absolutely fascinating. And it wouldn't be passed on if it wasn't working. Absolutely. Right? You do you do the passing ons of both what works and what yes. doesn't work. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. It has to. It has um, to work. And I think and I think the beauty of the um Western trained psychologists, psychiatrists and, and um medical experts that I've met as part of this journey with the with this project, medicinal psychedelics project, is that we know that there are limits to Western medicine but there's also limits to these traditional medicinal fields it's not about you know jumping and being alternative lifestylers it's about how we amalgamate, incorporate and learn from these different systems Mm. but in such a way that is rigorous that's my colleague colleagues from medicine or Mm. science they they've got their own different way of um exploring and testing anthropology we don't do that exploring testing so Mm. i've learned a lot from them as well so what did you learn from the experiences of people on ayahuasca well what we did was the global ayahuasca project was essentially ethics approved um, from my um, university to prepare a survey it is literally a survey that we've had translated into many, many languages, <laughs> um, 52 countries, people contributing you know, from different countries, collaborators from many different um, institutes and um, different countries. Um, we, we set up preparing a survey that would get us people's experiences of it. Hmm. But remember that in some places taking of ayahuasca might be illegal. That too you have to take, you know, for it to be ethics approved. You're not trying to, you know, get someone in trouble. But you also, you know, there are certain things like, so my colleagues from uh, the collaborators from the psychiatry, psychology perspective, they want to know certain things. Mm. Me as an anthropologist, I'm more interested in um, getting a sense of the relationships, the mm. identities and the kind of flow-ons that, that come with it. So <clears throat> before you started on this journey uh, of, a, of the survey that we just talked about, did mm. you do your research on ayahuasca or oh. DMT? Did you know what it was and how different it was from what you learned and actually the experience well, of the people? Okay, the <coughs> the thing is... Technicality-wise, that's my science colleagues and my other colleagues, collaborators. Mm. I'm far more experts in, you know, the chemical compositions and the the impacts on body, the stuff. My uh, research preparing, you know, we, we prepared, for example, an Australian Research Council grant twice, didn't go through. <laughs> you know, it's a journey that sort of has taken many, many years. And we, we pursued, we didn't get. Funding. We still haven't received grant funding for the project. It was passion, commitment and incredible good spirit of all these researchers from all these different countries who genuinely were concerned mm-hmm. and interested. Yeah. yeah? There, there hasn't been any monies or anything. But that also makes you um, more appreciative that 
you have to do the stepping steps. So my colleague, Daniel Perkins, far more knowledgeable about that aspect. For me, it was situating the understanding of ayahuasca and medicinal psychedelics to have people see their place, their role, Mm -hmm. yeah, in in life. In life. And I... And I've always been fascinated by that. Yeah. So that, um, and for me, of course, with all these years and collaborating and, you know, you build your knowledge up to, yeah. Can you, can you explain us, uh, give us like a picture of how you were doing the research? Like, were you talking to these people immediately no, after no, the? No, They are sort of like clinical trials and there are mm-hmm. studies like, you know, with, with, with other medicinal psychedelics that are, part of our medicinal psychedelics network, they're the experts and they do, um, you know, they have different projects approved, Mm. you know, um, like psilocybin and so forth. Um, Those things are very specific working with the people Mm. and, you know, this, the Global Ayahuasca Survey was for us to set the layout of, um, not parameters, but to invite people from different societies to share their experiences mm. of taking ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And we wanted to know their attitudes, their experiences, why they do it. So a lot of the papers that we've published thus far have been my psych colleagues leading mm-hmm. the, the write-ups mm because they've been directed at medicine, science-oriented. What we found was, and, it, you know, we had a, we held a symposium at Melbourne. My wonderful, you know, School of Social and Political Sciences was supportive, gave us funding so we can do catering and, you know, the university faculty having space. Because And people, you know, we had 102 people. Uh, who were experts coming from across Australia doing different kinds of research mm. or who worked with different kinds of communities and, and, and issues who wanted to hear about it. But the, you know, the Australian um, legal frameworks are not in place. There is resistance to hearing about it because you hear news, there's bad things happen what? to people going overseas mm. and... So they might not have mm. taken things properly. Why do you think this is so resistance there? It's not. Look, I think it's a carefulness. And I think most of the appreciation that I have gained from my colleagues and collaborators in this research project, they're all wonderful people. They're coming at it from a different perspective. In the medicine field um, where, you know, that they're from, you have to be really sure of the results. Mm. True. Because you could be influencing people to take action yeah. before it's sound, yeah? Before you see the actual results. Uh, yeah, and you don't, and, you know, one of our latest paper that was um, interpreting the, the survey data is looking at that issue that we refer to it as integration in that space, meaning, you know, after you take uh, this, or after you participate in a in a ceremony involved with this, well, 
you know, and you, like in our survey, a lot of people are saying they had incredible insight coming. But what happens afterwards? Yeah. Say that you experience a traumatic thing in your life and or maybe you'd forgotten some trauma. If you, It's not something that should be done without professionals mm. around. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It has to be done really carefully. That's why we've never made big claims. You know, Makes sense. the clinical trial aspect is a different level. I was going to ask you that because yeah. um, especially uh, ayahuasca, that's more, much more, um, I don't know if it's real, but ceremonized. It's a ceremony with shamans around you. That's the support. Yes. And and that's one of the things of our learning processes. And by the way, John Hopkins and many other um, researchers and, and part of the big collaborative research space is they are concerned with what in one of the papers that we refer to as set and setting. You know, what's the setting that you need? Mm. Yeah? What kind that's of big. context within which such alternative approaches should be taken? It's not a party thing. You don't no. do that on a party. <laughs> no. It's an and experience. No, yeah. and I come to respect my colleagues, um, the, the collaborators especially, and, and many others that I've read, you know, working in this space is they're being, maybe they're being conservative. Maybe they don't want to make big claims because there are so many people that are hurting mm. that, you know, if you've got mental health issues, for example, and, you know, what are your alternatives or if the standard medicines and counselling doesn't help, yeah, they're looking for something. They need something. Like a quick fix. Well, there's no. something, quick... some hope. Yeah. It? Yeah. And I think it's. I think it's irresponsible for anyone to be too quick and say, yeah, well, you know. So it's been a slow process, oh, four or five years' work, yeah. and it's still conservative mm. responses in that sense. Um, I mean, Daniel, um, Jerome Saris, you know, all the other great, much, much smarter, much more specialist in this space, than me, all the collaborators, just they're brilliant people. But, you know, we get contacted, like even this morning, checking the address for coming here to you guys. Um, you know, I see I didn't respond because I need a bit of time. Mm. And most often, you know, we do respond straight away. But people are looking for hope. There is something about mm. hope and that... Um, I think our understanding of what we need to do and the the nature of mental health well-being issues hmm. that we need to expand, yeah? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what were the similarities between all the people who experienced this while, you, you know, you were doing your research on the project? It wasn't just one. <clears throat> like in different aspects of the data, I... Um, with support of um, a few wonderful um, research assistants that um, have helped along the way because um, we've got over 11,000 responses. <laughs> so it's a oh, bit hard big. sometimes to pick. Absolutely. But there are categories of responses, yeah? So um, for me in particular, the things that I'm especially interested in 
is the what the you know the reasons people hmm. yeah so the I'm reasons sorry, the reason that they that, do that it they, that they they search out <clears throat> or, or try it or participate hmm. why in why the first place yeah yes um that was really in for me an important aspect the of course the nature of the experience yeah so mm-hmm. people have different levels um but really interesting to me things about how strongly issues of relationships come up so um having problems in relationships yeah or feeling that their relationships have become clearer enhanced after it after mm-hmm. after yeah? the experience yeah um the the um clearer doesn't necessarily mean that they're keeping relationships maybe some people decide to cut relationships hmm. but just having this sense clear understanding uh, um, yeah hmm. the fascinating relationship for me and um is around the issue of relationship with nature so and, nature sorry, is that not to cut you off because yeah. i've always heard ayahuasca being talked about as mother ayahuasca yeah and i don't know that's why that's a relationship with the, with with the with the with the plant the yes plant. yes yeah why is that <clears throat> i well i i have i'm not an anthropologist who did field work in amazonia and amongst the wonderful and there's some wonderful anthropologists who've done that and you know hmm. they can speak more but my sense because uh, I'm a kinship anthropologist of kinship so a lot of my expertise is in the space of kinship and I did look at very closely you know mother mm. ayahuasca mm. yeah that source point that nurturing point uh you know the whole thing of the extension of I am part of nature and ayahuasca being that nurturing role within my space in nature and it for me that connectedness to nature my relationship to nature somehow forming a reconnection to it makes me feel less isolated mm-hmm. makes me feel like i belong a bit closer yeah which circle backs to the first thing that made you curious that what is our place in the society yeah, and life yeah yeah and and the other aspect that i found really important is i've always been interested in how people relate to themselves mm-hmm. so i right. the reason i told you those stories of me as a village kid um you know living in a poor village um and you know my dad being an orphan and marrying and you know I've always had this sense, I guess that's a way to say it, that you know there are certain people that seem to feel like they don't quite belong or somehow are not situated within the society in such a manner that makes them feel like they have um not privilege but feels like uh, not even a right but um trying to think of the right word for knowing your place. <laughs> in yeah. the society yeah. does that make sense yeah, yeah. Does, that yeah. feeling like you you're not questioning it you know it mm. yeah but a lot of us constantly questioning you know our relationships our identities where we're situated and that has always been something for me and what you just talked about that our place in the society 
it's a subconscious thing if you are that then you don't question it as you said mm. and if you're not then subconsciously just always in that yeah. you know process of looking or trying yeah. to what we call it fit in yeah and look anthropology for me fundamentally the um i think i'm an anthropologist for a reason maybe but for me it's you know we're not we are individual individuals mm. but where we are social beings we we can't yeah. we frame our individuality relative to others yeah. we frame our place within amongst society we, um we're not hermits mm. we are social beings yeah. and these ways that we relate to each other and ways that we know whether we fit or don't fit you know sometimes they're said to us you know like kids pointing and saying don't play with her she's diseased because she's got no hair that's that's obvious yeah yeah but there are so many subtle ways that our position relative to others is read by us it's yeah. interpreted yeah we're human beings who are social mm. and for me that that is a really fundamental part um of of that fitting fitting yes. so i think everywhere every human being even if you want to assert total independence you're asserting independence to others mm. if the others don't acknowledge your assertion of independence no. you're not really independent, independent. Yeah. If nobody cares about this is me if people go, oh, well, <laughs> that's yeah. isn't that a part of identity? Yeah. Yeah. What is identity um given that nowadays we have a massive um call it movement or whatever we want to want to call a lack of better word out there of this gender identity or identity as an individual or trying to fit in or others respecting my pronouns what are your thoughts on that it's a very big space it's a massive space so you want me to answer it one nice <laughs> neat sentence <laughs> it's yeah no it's bizarre okay. it's bizarre maybe maybe one way to look at it is i um there's no such thing as a single identity mm. yeah because we fit uh relative to others differently So my identity to my mother is as daughter. Mm. To my partner I hope it's a bit more or less different, yeah? Of course. All the kids and and so forth. My colleagues, my students, even individual students, someone walking in the street might see my identity in a different way. Mm. So when we talk about identity, I don't think there is some kind of social, political, economic identity that is so clearly bound that it totally forms us but gender identity you know like whether i want to identify or can or feel comfortable identifying man woman or alternatively neither man neither woman or a combination yeah so mm. the there is the physicality the biology but fundamentally identity is about social So it's what we're comfortable so you know self identity and whether that the the way I want to ident- be identified is acknowledged so mm. the identity part for me is is fundamentally social even when we want it to be just about us in I mean we struggle 
we have struggles to say, who am I? Yeah. How mm. do I want to be known? But the reason we say, please use that pronoun or not, is because it's about our relationship with others. Mm. So identity is always social in my mind. But wouldn't that be pushing a narrative on the other person? Like if, if someone yeah. asked me to call them by a certain pronoun. I'm more than comfortable <laughs> to do it. But yeah. what if someone says, man, you know what? I don't want to play that game. What, what, then uh, it Okay. So typical anthropologist, I'm going to start analyzing. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. Because that's how I think. Uh, yes. So there's nothing wrong with being honest. Yeah. Okay. So the minute you say that to me, there's mm. there's a few elements. What you're saying is I don't, you know, like there's some people who say, I don't want you to dictate to me how I should see you. Yes. True. Right? That's mm. one element. The other one is I don't want you, from another person's perspective, I don't want your vision of me you you making an identity for me that I personally don't feel comfortable with. Mm. So I'm going to try to reorient you relating to me by what I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Mm. So that it's constantly how we relate to each other and what we want from each other. Sometimes we want just maybe acknowledgement, uh, recognition, mm. yeah? Other times when, you know, it, it could go much, much deeper. Um, and I'm, I mean, language is an issue. And, and for the reason, you know, the pronouns is because we know that language does have a very, very gender structure. Hmm. Not, maybe not in, you know, grammar in English, but it does, you know, the, the choice of words and mm. how we use them and those pronouns set and, you know, for a lot of people, the use of pronouns means that you are then set towards your identity and the manner of the interactions with you being shaped. Mm. So if I'm referred to by a male pronoun or female pronoun or, or or they, you know, the plural so that I don't have to. It, it's, I think, a genuine attempt by human beings to say, look at me and acknowledge that I'm a bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, but we're constantly struggling with, with those processes. Were you curious too as why... This happened in recent years, in a recent couple of years and not before? I think it's a long process. Look, I when I used to do first-year anthropology teaching, right, and we used to, you know, there's always examples from many cultures, hmm. um, you know, the Hydras, the, um, you know, Farfafini in the, in, in the Pacific, um, Hydras being in, in India and um, so forth. There's... Um, Ducks in um, American uh, amongst Native Americans, like every culture, you will find that there is space, acknowledgement, or maybe fear hmm. of what is naturally a much greater range of humanity than what we present. So this dichotomous yes, no, male, female, hmm. <laughs> you know. Hmm. And, and presuming that there's 
the fluidity is not present in all of us, yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't want to go into a big sort of discussion about where religion plays a hand, where structure of government plays a hand and so forth. But it does seem that adopting a modern approach for a long time has been somehow to create nice, neat categories. And thank God, uh, you know, if you're religious, sorry, I'm not, I don't know if I am or not, <laughs> I'm a believer of something, everything, totally. But I think there is a more comfortable space where we can acknowledge gender identity, gender experiences, um, sexual diversity, gender diversity, fluidities, without making it seem like it's about conservatism or non-conservatism, mm -hmm. political correct. You know, like the minute some people start getting worried about whether we should or shouldn't, they're not looking underneath. And what's underneath? These people who, for whatever reason, have really not felt comfortable in the context of their own society, their own families. And they want to be acknowledged and, mm. you know, for... Who they are. Uh, who they are. Mm. And ask, I don't know, I, I get I get a bit sort of um, emotional thinking that um, we have to sort of pin um, people's need to ask and if or need to assert he, she, they call me by these pronouns. To, that is a political stance, right? Yeah. But it's it, it comes stems from a genuine experience, a experience that has culminated to this call for us to think in a different way. And I'm sort of very open to it. Hmm. But it doesn't mean though the structure of my thinking, the structure of my language is going to keep up with that call for me to change. Yeah. So what we're trying to think about, um, I think, as an anthropologist, is the structures we've set up in our language, in our way we relate to each other, in the institutions of our society, it pins us into thinking in a particular way. And it's hard for us to get out of that mindset. And when someone asks us to get out of that mindset, you know, the, the kinds of resistance offered mm. to that request to change mindset um, tells us about how ingrained that structuring is, mm. yeah? Whether it's the norms, the values of society or whatever, or our upbringing or our personal experiences that set us, sort of get us stuck into thinking this is the way to see the world, this is the way to be present in the world, this is the way to relate. And... I love that there's a challenge. It just mm. shakes up the structure that's already been set up. Yeah, it's 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 sort of we can't change things, you know, the traditional philosoph philosophical orientation, Thomas Kuhn and others. You can't change a paradigm by following the same paradigm. Mm. Mm. You know, if we're gonna get change, you go, oh, we have to question what we're comfortable with and why we're mm. comfortable with it. Mm. You've got to stop me sometimes. Yeah, no, um, do you think it, people will give it much thought 20 years from now? Why not? 
I reckon humanity has always given some thought yeah. to that. It might be diff- different thoughts maybe, mm. yeah. But again, getting back to relationality, I think relationships and our identity and our place in the world will always give us some kind of angst yeah. in some way. That, that, that's why we're human. Mm. So mm. getting back to your identity stuff. <laughs> in a roundabout way. <laughs> <coughs> I just wanted to know your um, thoughts on it because I don't think I know enough to even talk about it. It's just I might as well just, as as I like to call it, and th- I'm just fr- phrasing someone else that I feel like I'm a lunkhead who wants to know more than he does. So uh, I'd, I'd rather just keep asking questions than put on forth my opinion about anything that yeah. I don't know about. Me too. I haven't had any experiences with someone correcting me to call them by a different pronoun yet unless i've had that experience i don't think i should even talk about it so i'm just asking questions on that yeah yeah it's also yeah once you get to know someone as well i think that will also shape your perspective yeah reorientate or uh restructure your mindset in some way once you get to know someone yeah who does identify as whatever yeah Yeah. but the reason i said that to you is because um it's our own critical self-reflection, another anthropological term I know, but, mm. you know, Bourdieu and all, of, all the other great uh, thinkers um, and many constantly write about it. It's that how do we get to know each other better and the place of us getting to know self better? So the critical reflexivity um, is that, well, you know, oh, what's my place in the space of the world? Mm. How do mm. I use language? How do I relate to people? Um, why do I phrase it that way? Yeah. Why do I get emotional when someone says that? Did I make a negative impact on someone? Or what's my impact on people? Yeah. yeah. And so I think I was, when you asked that, my thoughts were, that is a, a really fundamental, important question that each of us asks ourselves. And what I'm hoping is that our understanding is that how people want to be acknowledged, mm. yeah, they might phrase it in such a way that it goes outside what we take as sensible, understandable, no. logical and that, I think, is the structure that they're challenging. Mm, yeah. it's, not, um, it's not necessarily what we do. We can be really wonderful human beings and, you know, but it's the structure of thinking ends up conveying itself to people who for some reason genuinely don't feel that they understood or don't feel that who they want to be is acknowledged so it's always about relational and it's how we set that up and part of that is saying well why am i you know like you were talking about you know the the, i have that sort of humility thing of um i think there's no such thing as expert like even if you've done (laughs) 19 years worth of work and like even you asking me before about the medicinal psychedelics ayahuasca you know it's sort of 2015, 2016, a long time ago and several, you know, many publications. I 
you know, there's no way, well, I don't have the medicine background, I don't have yeah. the clinical psychology background, I haven't been. So I shape my responses from that. Sorry, I'm doing critical reflexivity yeah, no, no, here. Good, good. Yeah, but I shape my responses hmm. in acknowledgement of those yeah. things. Context yeah, of yeah. me. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. It does. And that's how I, when um, I like, I hope that, when gender comes up and um, it just makes you feel like, oh, is it a controversial thing? Do why we, should it be a con? Why should con it yeah, be? It, yeah. I think we spend too much time just yelling at each other where we could just sit down and have a conversation and solve a lot of yeah. the issues that people have with one another. Yeah. It's also but that... Take a moment to walk in someone else's shoes, for instance. I think that's a very important yeah, thing to have. Walk in someone yeah. else's shoes. But the big thing, um, whether, you know, whichever sort of, and not talking about political ideological leanings, yeah, yeah? Um, I feel like for whatever reason, um, say in Australia, and um, there's so much attention not to stand apart, not to stand out. Mm, the tall the, poppy syndrome. Yeah, yeah. The, mm. and the difference thing. Yeah. Like we're, I mean, we get picked on if we're different. Mm. But there's so much attention to the claims of not yeah. being different. Yeah. And it's not true. Just yeah. accept difference is difference. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be resolved and made nice and neat and mm. sameness. And that range of difference um, sort of, yeah, I, I'm really fascinated by that structure of thought. Um, and even in the um, ayahuasca project, you know, the, a lot of the responses were about gender, you know, yeah. relationship, identity mm. of self. Um, you would say, you know, even the term mother ayahuasca, that's a very nurturing mother role. Yeah. Mm. Um, do we then see it as... Genderist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Sorry about that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> life after ayahuasca, was it better for them? Yeah. Or was it worse? That's what I wanted to know. That's exactly what our team, you know, not only the experiences, why they did it, what were their reasons, what the nature of that experience you know, were they doing it as part of a ceremony? Mm. Did they take it with friends on the beach, hiding? That's true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, like, and, you know, um, many, or oh, as part of uh, a church or a religious mm. uh, ceremony. Um, the reason I mentioned the word integration before is, yeah, what happens after? Not only the nature of taking it, you know, what what what, what was it like and, some, you know, would say that it was almost, you know, like there's vomiting, there's, there's a physical... Yeah, there's a physical part of it. Part of it, mm. yeah. The um, sense of enlightenment, opening up mm. the, to thinking and, and um, you know, seeing colours better and seeing things, you know, more vividly. Higher consciousness was mm. a big component, mm. feeling that they are closer to having a, a that sort of connectivity, yeah? Mm. Um, and some, we were the last paper that we did as a team, 
um, was actually, well, how do they integrate that? Okay, so you feel like you've gained this knowledge, mm. self-awareness, yeah, mm. um, self-knowledge. And what then? Because you can't keep taking the, <laughs> you can't keep, keep yeah. you know. You have to process that information. How do you process it? Yeah. Exactly. Are we capable of processing it on our own? Mm. Well, in a traditional setting, you know, like you've got, say, you know, part of ceremony and there's others there present that know how to help in the reading of the experience. That's true. And in the processing. Mm. Um, I don't think it's something that someone should try mm. just Casually. Casually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with that. The traditional um, knowledge bearers and practitioners, the shamans, you know, the ayahuasca, uh, great knowledge, yeah? And, you know, from the scientific, you know, the, the wonderful researchers that I'm coming across and um, the they have spent a lot of time mm. doing, you know. Right. The, the, and the, they know that requires you require not just community you know the fellow people that are part of the taking and mm -hmm. stuff someone knowledgeable in way it's that processing mm. i mean what if you suddenly saw a light of something that was really devastating for you you, you can't just be left alone afterwards to deal with it mm. i think there's a long way to go i think we're getting closer did you ever experience but, the negative effects of that? Or did people say... They did, and we did a paper on it. Because yeah. um, people we, who are prone to schizophrenia might, you know, yeah. have a... Can you share some experiences? Oh, no, I, I can't... The actual experiences, obviously. But oh, yes. we, we wrote a, a paper based on the findings of the survey. Mm. Um, there, there are different, um, you know, feelings of isolation, not being able to connect... Mm. Um, some things are too traumatic. You, you, you can't resolve them, mm. yeah? There's mm -hmm. all, there was a range of, but you know what? We overall um, done in a proper context, proper context, yeah? Um, the, ayahuasca is not addictive. Oh, yeah. Oh. So the, um, but there might be physical manifestations, but it's the psychological and the processing and the integrating of that knowledge and having ongoing support. If you're in a part of the society where that has been the healing process, the enlightenment mm. process, you know, people might be able to pick up the cues and clues about whether you're integrating it, whether you're processing it, whether you feel isolated mm. or not. Yeah? Here, it's not our context. Mm. You know. Did you experience them talking about uh, entities mm. that people see entities in there yeah, where did that come issues. from i wish i was a psychiatrist i'm just i'm just um, curious okay. if <sighs> um you know there i think yeah, I can't answer. I'm totally doing a think that's, yes. piece. That's, okay? I'm just, just um, curious. I'm not giving you the formal yeah. uh, formal stuff. I can't. Okay. Um, but it is obvious that there's a lot of vision stuff mm. that comes out, right? In all humanity, the brain is not just some sort of material thing that you of course, get on yeah. with. 
Um, I mean, when I was doing not the ayahuasca project, but even when I was doing my field work and even in my general experience um, of life, there's a lot of talk by people of, you know, dreams. And I've even wrote about, you know, inter- the way the dreams are mm. interpreted and stuff. I got Turkish coffee cup readings knowledge. I used to do it for people in the village. And when I came back after field work, I actually used to do Turkish coffee readings for people to interpret. So a bit weird. Um, The thing is a lot of people have this sense of presences. Mm. I can't say whether it's just them being in a state of It's not my place. Of course. I don't know. Mm. But I do know humanity has always been mindful of whether there is nothing but the material world yeah. or something else. That's yeah. humanity. And that that's, you know, the way our brain, our imagination, our, our sensorial stuff mm. comes out. And I think there's always some kind of, but vision is well, You glazed over that you were a believer or not. Are you a believer? Do you of believe what? in God? In God, in, in God. spirituality? Are you a spiritual person? And if you are, what's um, your relationship with God? A particular God, I'm uh, just well, think of. That's okay. just as a spiritual person. <laughs> um, or were you ever curious to question the existence of God? I don't come from that sort of Westernish kind of religious mm. questioning mm. or not questioning. The good thing about coming from an ex-communist country, right, mm. maybe, <laughs> I don't know, but put it this way, Orthodox, right, Orthodox Christian. So there's no... Uh, the Slavic Orthodox, the Macedonian Orthodox, like in the villages, the the religions were just part of the rituals, you know, birth, death, marriages, saints' days, day of the dead. You go and feed the dead. You you take food to the dead. You, you know, sit with them and how you've been, you know, put a bit of um, rakia, you know, alcohol on the ground or wine mm. or something and say, hey, have a bit, Dad. So you commune with the dead. You eat with the dead. You, um, for my lot, it's always been that um, it's not just dead and gone. Mm. So the ancestors are present, and the whole death ritual, the whole process. Uh, you know, death is a journey, and mm. you're helping your dead through the journey into. Some place where they can find <laughs> yeah. peace. Mm. So you go through rituals to help them journey, but you're also journeying. You're mm. journeying with them, yeah? So um, that has always been part of my life, whether I, I thought about it or not. Mm. Um, consciously, I, you know, like people talking about, I feel a presence. Mm. And I hear that a lot. I, I feel a presence. Oh, I feel funny. Um, a lot of the old people, including my mum and my lovely 82-year-old broken English mum, keeps going on about, you know, the cold hitting you on the back of the uh, on your back. So she keeps telling us to put, you know, cover your back, don't leave your back exposed. Because, you know, once it hits your body, that's it. So there's these sort of connections to body and of course death mm. body finishes and what okay. I was but yeah but we keep feeding those dead 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah? So from my own personal experience, I've never actually thought about it. And if I'm genuinely honest, because let's face it, who else is going to know except all the people that are listening to mm-hmm. you? Yes. Um, I've always thought that it's very Western cultural perception that you have to question religion. I've never been concerned with questioning whether I believe or not. Mm. Um, I very much believe that our makeup as human beings is further out, further out. We constantly think of something out. Mm. <laughs> we don't, we're not just material, mm. objective things. Um, there has to be something. I absolutely believe in humanity. And maybe that's my greatest bit. Um, I do believe in humanity. I um, I do believe there's something that we feel, our space connectedness. I, I you know, the spirituality of people I totally respect. Like, um, you know, I had a conversation once a few, not that long ago, with a colleague um, and I don't want to go too further um, from from one of the universities saying that, you know, being Indigenous and just saying, oh, yeah, I lived, uh, you know, over there. And she said she, she sort of felt the heebie-jeebies because the story connection to that place was that it was a place of massacre, yeah? Mm. Um, and so I might be walking in a place, I don't get the full sense the full impact that comes at me from mm. place, um, from spirits, from connectedness, yeah? Um, but someone else does. Mm. So what right do I have not to believe or not to think that the it's world is out? Yeah. That, I mean, I'm sense. not trying to say, I just can't give you a yes, no answer. Mm. I believe in humanities affinities and connectedness and the need to connect. And I know that I, whether I want to or not, even in my private life being a Macedonian kid, no longer a kid, but, you know, (laughs) um, yeah, we go through that process and and the presumption that it is just material doesn't hold in the way our human brains work Work. anyway. Mm. There's so much about the universe that we don't understand. Yeah, yeah. And, and and what we think that we understand is constantly changing. changing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we have a lot of faith as human beings. You know, we actually couldn't exist without some kind of faith, mm-hmm. whether it's faith in nature, faith in humanity, yeah. faith in one God, many spirits. We're actually creatures of faith far more. Mm, mm. You know, yeah, um, absolutely. we we feel like we have to believe that there is a little bit extra. We have a little bit more. Yeah, and yeah, and isn't I think that's Dostoevsky said this. He said, "Without God, everything is allowed." So we we need that sort of shaping uh, of boundary. Shaping, yes, well, shaping of the Slav Dostoevsky. <laughs> 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 um, I'm actually fascinated by that. But <laughs> <thank you. laughs> 
Me too. Okay. <laughs> about about fascination. As an anthropologist, what fascinates you? Or what, like, as, as you sit down on your everyday life and you look around the world, what's going on in the world or whatever it is, what's, oh what God. fascinates you? And this is a very vague question. So you'll have to, you know, narrow it down to your uh, fascinations. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I am fascinated by so much. That's why I can't, I'm a generalist. Mm. You know, like... Yeah. Even you know, my job at the university is sort of trying to get me to be a specialist on one thing. I can't because I keep ayahuasca, medicinal psychedelics. Obviously, kinship has been fundamental. Gender identity, organizations, you know, this fetishization of, you know, leaders. Take me to your leader. We need a leader to solve this. You know, the leaders are not solving this. You know, all these things about what fascinates me. I guess is how we live together. That's the whole essence of anthropology. It's how we live together, how we sort of structure our living together, whether it's through mythologies, stories, punishments, institutions, mm. how we live together and keeps changing. So, you know, in the post-COVID world, going to do my shopping at, you know, I'm not going to name the supermarket because then people will, you know, it's not a commercial thing. But, yeah, you're going and, you know, there was a, a while when people would be putting their shopping trolleys, they'd load up their car and they'd actually take the shopping trolleys to the shopping bay, you know, to the trolley bay. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, I see more and more. They just left. Why is that? Like, I don't know. I mean, there's all, you know, we can make interpretations, yeah? Hmm. But this thing that somehow... Um, you know, I'm really concerned, fascinated by what makes us stay together and what separates us that, that, as human mm. beings. That That's my essence. Not what we, you know, and the things that somehow feels like what keeps us together, um, thinking community, communitas, mm. you know, social, the genuine social placidness of each other, not just... Me, I don't care, you know, I've gone past COVID, I mm. survived that and I'm going to think about me, 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 me. That me part mm. doesn't mean that you care less about others, but, it, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, survival of the fittest. Like there's a, I'm really fascinated by that tension between us being individual and us being part of society yeah. or yeah. life. Do you think people are better individually than what they would be in a group. Yeah, group dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of my sociology theorising colleagues I think would have better way to look at it. But from an, from my um, perspective, like in the research looking at whether, you know, been to Nepal, India, a few places, Indonesia, very regularly, mm. um, the Europe, um, a lot working with, uh, yeah, a, a lot of different people and how they situate themselves yeah. these days. Yeah, and you think, you know, well, what makes us stay together? Mm. What, what makes us sort of separate off and think more about me? Yeah, the individualness, I. Don't think there's anyone who wants to be truly, totally alone. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're human beings. We, and we, we can't. But that thing of, well, I'm going to 
pave the space for me in the world as opposed to cooperating and collaborating with others so that I have a space in the world. Yeah. I think yeah. that's changing. Yeah. Like somehow we feel like we need to reorient. And, yeah, like, I mean, the villagers and me looking at gossip in a Macedonian village and then looking at social media, it's just gossip. And they're all villagers. So the village is being reconstituted in different spaces mm. and our need to separate ourselves from village gossip has changed, maybe, but it's still there. Yeah. It's still that underlying still same there. feeling of, you know. You know where, do I belong? Mm, yeah. You know, or not. It's all about fitting in. Or not fitting <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, not fitting in. And yeah, what exactly, makes yeah. me not care? Yeah. Well, we say we don't care, but if we're totally alone with no human contact, we'd care. Yeah. Yeah, so it's changing. People can put on a face and say they don't care, but. We do. Yeah. We're human, you know. Anyway. Modernity and the making of men. Unmaking of men. Unmaking of men, apologize. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds a bit, yeah. What what does the title mean? Do you like the title? I do. I do. Yeah. I do sort of. Captured. I didn't. I didn't get it. I don't understand. Explain it to it? me. Okay, so it's based on my ongoing research, as I said, in Macedonian um, village um, society, and the whole obsession from the time that my very first day in the first village. Um, entering this village and, you know, uh, women coming to the where they had organised for me to stay and, you know, pay for a room, rent a room with an old elderly woman because they thought that she'd be better company for me because I was going alone, um, was this problem of having in that particular village 64 men past the marriage age unable to get married and less than, you know, nine girls mm. available for marriage. You don't have the thing of arranged marriage, introduced marriage. Um, and, you know, girls are getting education and high school for them is a bit further out from the village and, of course, you know, university, college or getting a job or they get married in order to leave the village. So you've got the collapse of villages, very high numbers of these men. So that, that was my first encounter, you know, with, with and you try to make sense of it. Well, what's going on? If you speak to, you know, the mums, the mothers, and, a, and I've written about this in, in a few places, you know, what's wrong with my boy? He's a beautiful boy. He's young. He's got a job. You know, hmm. he's polite to elders. He can't find a, a girl. So that's what, you know, you go, I, I, I don't know. I can't say what's wrong with your boy. Yes. Um, and then you speak to the men. Oh, the women here, then, you know, they're putting the girls down. You know, they're modern. Like mm. they, they're not respectful. They're not, you know, what they didn't say, they're not virgins, but something like, you know. You, along those lines. Along those lines kind of thing. You know, you don't know who they've been with or, mm. you know. Um, and then when you talk to the women, you go, why would I marry, so, why would I marry a villager? <laughs> why would I want to be stuck in a village, right? 
So village depopulation, you could have all sorts of reasons, economic, political, social reasons that make perfect sense. Governments are not investing in country towns, in villages or, or you know, rural sites. Politically, they don't have that sort of power. Like You can have all these sound, logical reasons that help us maybe, maybe on the surface, explain um, why there is such a massive high number of ageing unmarried men. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the society that I came from. Um, you know, the, you know, in China, in, in, in India, in many societies, there's massive, massive um, difference between ageing, the number of ageing bachelors, or in some places the rise in ageing uh, girls, women mm. who don't marry. Um, and f- speaking to the women... If they got a chance to leave the village, they would. That's one, right? I don't want to be stuck. Why? Because you've got this kinship structure where um, a woman marries into a man's house, ideally. Of course, they, you know, not all, mm. but most of them and ideally. And, you know, it's the man, it's my house, it's my father's house. So the women coming in, as they don't have a share that's, mm. you know, patrilineal. It's the man's line. Mm. When If she divorces, she gets nothing. Um, if he dies she as a widow, the, she doesn't get the stuff as a widow, goes to the son, goes to the daughter or maybe to his brother. Mm. So women are um, dispossessed, bypassed. You've got also all these standards around women's sexuality and the scrutiny of women and I think women and one of, one of the aspects that I wanted to explore in the book Modernity and the Unmaking of Men is the way that given the chance to study, to work, to travel, given the chance to leave, women leave. Mm. When women withdrawing their complicity to play in the patriarchal game, Mm. Right? You can talk big stuff, you know, I'm a man, some people think. You go, yeah, okay. But if you can't get married, if women are not complicit in that game of yours, mm. <laughs> it ain't going to happen for you, fella. Mm. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm being lighthearted about it. But, and it was this thing of the way that women's education, ability to work, being more independent and mobile, compels men to, in this context, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to be a generalist and everything. That's, we're just talking com- about Macedonian religious yeah, society. but in, in, other, in many others. So, in other societies, many. yes. Um, and here too there's elements because we've got, you know, a lot of ageing bachelors in rural Australian context. That's why mm. Farmer Wants a Wife show worked. <laughs> True. Um, mm. But the, it's this thing of um, withdrawal of complicity. Mm. You know, saying I'm not complying with the image you have yeah. of me. I'm not complying with the structures and what you want me to do. Mm. And the most significant way that women do that, well, in this, you know, um, context, is not marrying. Some 
Was there uh, was there a f um, competitiveness among among those men? Um, because with the girls, with the with the girls, of course, because you know the proportion is just drastic. It's, it doesn't work that way. Um, what I was especially interested in, and I pick up on it because of that, you know, where where I travel and and sort of engage in other places, I pick up on it really quickly, mm. and they've been even a few uh, newspaper sort of items around China and, you know, some some sort of uh, deviance or some some problems that have been happening. And, and in India, and they sort of I just pick up the nuance and they're sort of making it seem like it's a problem because they've got a very big number of ageing men that I don't think it's about the competition between the men. I think it's about many, many things. One is relationships between men and women, obviously. But the younger generation of men versus the older ones, the ones that were aging bachelors when I was there were mostly well past marriageable or coming close to, you know, um, mm. like if the average age, the villagers, you know, up till then, you know, they'd marry between 20 and 25 years old. Mm. Um, these blokes were in their mid thirties. Hmm. A couple were early forties. Well, okay. So they're uncle category for the girls. There's no way girls absolutely yes. see them as eligible yeah. bachelors. Yeah, they're stopping. Uh, yeah. but, but I would think there there should be some sort of there would be some sort of and this is just me presuming would be some sort of, of uh, like a feeling of competitiveness that I want to become the best bachelor out there so that I get most oh. of the options. No, I got the feeling, and because women are going to look for markers of success, you know, a house or a stable oh, income. But those things don't matter. the The thing is, having a house and the success points in a village context. You know, we we're a big family. We've got lots of fields, lots of cattle. Got a big house. Those things were irrelevant to the girls mm. because they merely cemented them in a traditional gender role which, and they, which they were trying to escape escape out oh makes so, sense so what you, we would think was the competitive advantage stop being at a competitive advantage yeah. and for me um it like the women the mothers of these aging bachelors were in the game of competition oh, makes but sense. but not the sons Mm. So the mothers um, is they would be sort of, um, you know, she's bought she's bought a machine. Well, we've got to buy a machine. Yeah. Or, you know, she, that mm. gives them advantage for bringing a bride in. Of course. Or, like so yeah. the mm. competition um, was really notable. It's It's about competition means relative to others. Yes. So if it's not about... You know, you. driving yourself. Yes, yeah. it's where mm -hmm. you're positioned Shouldn't, in your, in, yeah. Yeah. in the in the structure of hierarchy, basically. Yeah, and mm. and and that's that thing. How could you be an honourable fam? You know, like that makes it seem like if you're really poor, mm. you know, you, but it's not true. Like there's always some element. So, for example, some people would say um, the poor. You know, women saying we may not have as much as they do, but we've got manners. Mm. We're respectful. Yeah. No one gossips about us. 
our reputation, you know, yeah. like yeah. on we're honourable. So that's sort of like a competitive advantage mm. as well. Hmm. You know? yeah. So if they... So basically they were just trying to escape their current conditions and move out of the village. So I, that kicks out the uh, competition part that, you mm. know, we have stuff or materialistic stuff. What? Okay. Th- that whole thing of how we construct masculinity, mm. yeah? And and one element is the relationship maybe, you know, with mum and dad, relationship with, uh, you know, boy, girl, if they're getting for marriage, right? And then the other element is most of our gender stuff comes from relating with like gender, like sex. So it's what happens amongst men, what happens amongst women, seem, you know, matters just as much, if not more, than what happens between men and women and or, you know. Um, and for men, like... These ageing bachelors in the 90s when I was doing my initial field work, they were in there, you know, some of them were, you know, 33, 34, 36, one was 42, thereabouts, and across 10 villages I was finding similar kind of sort of patterns. Patterns, Okay. The thing was it's the way the younger men relate to these old bachelors. So most of the time they'd be telling me like, um, you know, I took him out, I brought him, you know, we were a group going to the city to have a drink, maybe meet some girls. He goes dressed like an old man. Look at his shirt, Violetta, you know, he's, mm. he's, and he, look at his combed over hair. He doesn't know. So mm. they pick out the old bachelor, right? He, he doesn't know the latest trend. So the, it's not, competition between younger men older men and mm. the competition it, the, it, the, there isn't even a sense of the competition they feel like you know they're the old category they embarrass them they reduce their chances to get a girl so a lot of the younger blokes were concerned about reduction or or you know said so that they are mates you know same age like they're in their 30s and some feel more socially competent and capable with girls and you go out for a drink and you've got an aging bachelor kind of mate that sits next to you Mm. I was you know I even wrote it in the book in one of the chapters you know the um look at him he looks like an old, you know, aging bachelor. He's listening to this, you know, Yugo nostalgia music that was, you know, from the 1970s or whatever. Like he doesn't, they don't keep up with the time. Mm. And they don't keep up with the time because they've, they've just become resolved. They think that, that they don't have a chance. Interestingly, Pierre Bourdieu's mm. Bachelor's Ball, you know, he was noting that in the 60s mm. and 70s. In France. So it happened, you know, the famous anthropologist, you know, um, looking at ageing bachelors in Ireland and this um, before that, you know, whether it's ageing men or ageing women, people who don't fit that mould of their society and the expectation to marriage are going to get it tough. Mm. But modernity, and the reason I was calling it modernity in the unmaking of men, 
you know, long story short, sorry about that, <laughs> no, no, um, is because there are certain kinds of spaces and opportunities that modern context of society enables, you know, greater mobility, education, mm. movement out, which means that your repository of coping with negotiating relationships changes. Mm. You know, there are certain things like you can leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is, I've spoken with people from this end, you know, arriving here, like uh, aging bachelor, marrying, uh, you know, a Macedonian girl who goes back there to find a husband and Indians do that as well and many others do, yeah, uh, but feeling like, um, you know, you marry her, you come here to escape poverty and she lords it over you for the rest of your life. Mm. So this sense of imbalance, mm. like it's not a choice, yeah. it's not a match. So just before we wrap this up, how do we fix it then? You don't. How can you fix humanity? We have, <laughs> I am not a great engineer. <laughs> I don't believe in, in personally, I think that, and the reason I was interested in the precarity issue, if we change the structure of work, political structures, our living conditions, yeah, It impacts on how we relate to each other, who we think we are, and therefore it's going to have a different shape. So, for example, I, I thought it was really funny that, um, you know, Prime Minister a few ones ago and um, will say, we need to have more children, women need to Reproduce, bear more to yeah. produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, women go, yeah, right. Are you going to look after them? <laughs> the structural parties, hang on a moment. Great, you want us to. But we need two income, yeah? Mm. Um, uh, you don't pay me for childcare mm. or not adequately. Mm. I need to do this. And besides, I don't want to have kids or I don't want to have too many or I want to travel or I want to yeah. delay it, Yeah. People are built differently. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's some things like um, if you want if you want to engineer a difference, you know, don't ask them just to have kiddies, extra mm-hmm. kids. You might need to think about, well, what are the services they need to support that? And then even then, so what? If they don't want to for whatever reason, yeah, how are you going to make them? Mm. So... Yeah, the it's a really complex issue. I don't think we're going to fix it. That's what I mean. I think that relationality um, is continually being impacted and structured. There are, again, using sort of, you know, sociological framings, but there are structuring structures that shape our relationships, mm. government, policies, laws, the way that they do the streets and the suburbs and housing, they're structuring structures. They, you know, how we relate to people. You want to, you know, you're concerned about community volunteering dropping and the loss of community. What are you doing about those structures that enable community? Mm. So I, yeah, I think that it's a real tension. I, I don't think there's a fix. Okay. 
Sorry. <laughs> I love how you apologize. Like, yeah, sorry, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Do you think? Well, why should I? Yeah. I, I no, can't act like fine. a, you know, I hate that idea of an expert, you know, listen to me and you'll fix it. Yeah. In a, mm. Do you think someone can't truly be happy until they have kids? I don't personally believe that. Yeah. Um, I think everyone's different. Yeah. Um, I, I'm in a weird start. Like, mm. I've got combined with my partner. Like I said, I've given birth to three. I've got another two because of my partner. Right. That um, there's three grandchildren. Because mm. <laughs> so I'm of that category. Um, yeah. So and. Um, They've always been around. So we've, we live in a four-generation household. Um, my mother lives with us. Mm-hmm. She's, she's a typical, yeah, you know, widow, lives with us, daughter with a broken marriage, comes back with a grandson. So there's layers, another couple of um, grandsons who mostly stay with us from Friday Sunday. I think that's beautiful. To, to it's extended, where I come massive. from. I think that's beautiful because what those grandson grandkids are experiencing, and Generation. there is exactly, exactly. That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I, I don't believe people, sh- you know, should give birth or have children. Everyone choice. I, I totally, absolutely. You're but a pro-choice. Mm. I am. No, not that way. <laughs> um, whatever that means. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. For, I mean, that's a politically think. loaded. Don't politically load me. Um, <laughs> the thing for me, though, is I absolutely love the, the multi-generationality. Yes. Me too. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, I, I, but I've why? Born, what sh- uh, I want to. I want to know that why. Why do you love it? I get surprises. I yes. mean, the six-year-old, and like uh, one of my grandsons, um, uh, is is autistic. He's so smart. He's mm. so handsome. But you know, there are things that are specifically related to autism. And you know, getting ready to come to you guys today, and and I'm at the, trying to rush off because I'm always late. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't this time. You're no, you were, you were early. You were early. She, I made it by the skin <laughs> of my teeth. Um, he, you know, autism sort of tends not to be, um, in his case, interactive. And he goes, oh, you look nice, Bob. And I thought, oh, cool. <laughs> um, gave him a kiss. said, thanks. The six-year-old from the other daughter says, come on, Bubba, what are you doing? And you go, far off. Okay. The in generationality stuff mm-hmm. is that it's constantly you get different perspectives on self. Where I'm positioned as a grandmother, as mother to my, you know, my partner, um, like there's so many positionalities framed in it. My children want to situate me as a villager because I love the tradition. I love cooking from all over the world. But it somehow makes them feel like a connection to their grandmother, my mother's mother, mm-hmm. who'd passed away, to feel like that, you know, I can do the traditional Maasai foods and stuff. Yeah. But I'll do that. Then I'll go on the veranda. I'm sitting on my laptop and preparing my, you know, project, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> research project and writing yeah. a book. Yeah. It's, 
and that's where I'm coming to that identity stuff that we started with. I am multiple identities, not because I'm, you know, um, me on the other hand, I like that situation where the, your grandkids are growing up because look at the growth of that kid, that six-year-old in that household versus a kid who's living in a suburb who just goes to, you know, childcare or school, comes back, and that, is, is isolated with yeah. two, two parents. But I don't want people to feel like that's a shortcoming point. I think that inter-cross-generationality stuff and, and feeling like you're part of community can be borrowed. It's like borrowed scenery in traditional Japanese, mm. um, you know, landscaping. Um, it, the whole thing is you may not have a mountain, mm. but, you know, position your trees in a particular yeah. way and you might... You can replicate you that. You can replicate that mm. sense of intergenerationality. One of the things like a, Australian... Sorry, now you're getting into my space of kinship, <laughs> but um, the Australian households and families are forever evolving, mm. yeah? yeah? And I always felt, um, you know, like a lot of the ethnics sort of maybe a reaction to their marginal positionality in the society would sort of say, mm, Australians, you know, they're not very family-oriented. And I go, no, they're extremely fa- family-oriented. They're extremely family-oriented but express it in a different way, yeah. mm. in a different shape, yeah? yeah? Much different more, kind much more of than thing. West or America. Yeah, say. but, it, yeah, and the way that we express that but our living arrangements, they're changing. Like mm. we know that people are less, young people are less likely to leave home earlier or they've left economic crisis, that's the structuring structures, mm. and they have to come back home because you can't yeah. manage. Yeah. So these dynamics keep changing. What I absolutely love about multi-generational household in my lot is that I get the sense that the six-year-old talking with the 82-year-old and that you can replicate, you know, like yeah. the replicate. You can, you, you, you know, they can share those sorts of, they don't have to be in the household. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's the cross-generation that is really important. Mm. Some kind yes. of contact. You're right, you can replicate that, but I just think that it's invaluable than what kid experience every day looks at people around, you know, him and her doing things and pick up on their identities and how they still yeah, do stuff. But we we're not all able to do that. That's true. And and also some families are really shite. Sorry for saying that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you you have a lot could of be chaotic, um, could traumatic. be chaotic. Could be traumatic. Yeah. Yeah, you've got a, you know, someone who's getting on to forgetfulness and so I told you not to put my blue jumper in the, you know, like you shrunk my jumper and you go, hey, kid, wash it yourself if you don't want granny to do it. (laughs) Like there's all sorts of reasons, yeah? That's true. Um, I'm fascinated even though, you know, for example, um, you know, you have um, sons married and this is nothing to do with my my lot, but uh, you know, a woman saying to me, and this comes quite often, uh, these comments like, "Yeah, my husband and I, we've done everything for his parents, but oh, you know, they just love 
you know, the other brother. So the mm. family politics. Yeah. It's, oh, it's massive dynamics. Mm. Constant. Constant, yeah. Yeah. But I think that's part of being human as well, yes. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. You learn that, you, you know, where you fit in and who's got your back and in one way works to some degree or it might work totally for some, absolutely not for the other. And getting back to that identity stuff, you know, having for ex- um, someone who was kicked out of their house tell me that, you know, and they're not, they're not um, I won't tell you what ethnicity because it's irrelevant, but coming from a very traditional um, family context and, you know, once they found out he was gay, kicking him out and no contact so there's multiple factors to family and kinship it's not rosy. just one unit dynamic yeah mm. and the getting back to that ayahuasca stuff um there were so many responses where people were concerned about relationship with mum relationship mm. with dad relationship with wife husband yeah relationality is such a crucial thing to us feeling like we have a place in the world and we belong and or not belong. Wow. <laughs> Lots of stories you should, today. You should stop me talking. No, but I think we've we've I feel like I've just scratched the surface. I want to tap into something much deeper and okay. um I would rather let my guests talk than me trying to um you know we can navigate. learn a lot more. Yeah, yeah we can learn a lot more and as you you're good interviewers. <laughs> I like you. it. You're kind. I would say you're kind. But um, Dan, if you have any other questions, I think we should wrap it's this up. It's, it's been fascinating. It's been fascinating. Yes, yeah. sir. We could have gone another few hours, but 100%. it's been great. 100%. You know. Thank you so much. For Thank you so much. Thank you so much and for having me. I'm sorry I over talked. No, 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 no. And um, if there's a chance, we want to have you on again. And I want to structure that one. Um, and I want to oppose some views that I think I don't agree with or I agree with. I would I would love to yeah. do that with you. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually did um, well organized by my by our student master student group, and you know I was part of it uh, doing a homeless or not homeless you know debate. Mm. I'm not that brilliant at debates because I'm likely to be more diplomatic. Yeah. I tend to sort of wave between mm. yes or no mm, I and I sort of teach. It's not that I want to debate you. It's just that yeah. um, it's, it's just that's for me. That's not even because I want to debate it. It's sort yeah. of like I want to see that because in order for have my me as a me opinions, I need to learn a lot more about all these subjects, which I'm trying my best to. So yeah. maybe that. But yeah. we'd love yeah, to hone again. And um, thank you so much for being here. You're awesome. And uh, let's wrap this up then. Thank you, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you.